Today is an invitation to Membership Sunday. If you are ready to join this congregation and make a financial commitment to the work of this church in the world, then I invite you to meet with me in my church study immediately after today's worship service. I spotted her in the receiving line one Sunday. I had watched Raylene Ramirez grow into adolescence during my ministry in Pasadena. She is now a young adult and has retained the gleam in her eyes and the devil in her smile. After a hug and a bit of banter, Raylene tells me in all seriousness, you saved my life, you know. Saved whose life? I wondered to myself. I don't remember any occasions where Raylene's life was in jeopardy, at least when I was present. Wasn't I always too busy racing toward deadlines or running to committee meetings in the church industrial complex to actually get out and minister, let alone lifeguard? Yet I'm intrigued, so I ask for her assistance. Help me remember when this occurred. Raylene looked dumbfounded. How could you forget? My mom was completely out of control. My dad was too controlling. And they both refused to admit that their only daughter was not the pure and innocent baby they had adopted. And she says, then when I started searching for my birth parents, they wanted to put me in a group home. Is that all? I deadpanned, and we both laughed. But it had been serious, this typical youthful rebellion ramped up, especially for mother and daughter, by the complexity of a transracial adoption and the expectation of cultural assimilation. As parents, many of us don't want our children to age into adulthood. By the way, I am not one of them. <laughs> so grow up, Stuart boys. I'm still waiting. It's true. Raylene was on a downward spiral and exhibited behaviors that were destructive and long-lasting. Mom was screaming a lot, and Dad was tightening the rules to rein in his daughter. Of course, their response to Raylene was only pushing her closer to the edge. This is where most youth take a fall and where most families fall apart. But the Ramirez family had a resource that many families do not. Dad was a member of the board of trustees at the church that I served and mom was an active member of the Youth Religious Exploration Committee. Both parents were faithful teachers in the Sunday school. While my words may have offered some comfort or insight, it was the church, and particularly its educational ministry, that held this family together. Raylene's experience makes plain that a congregation's educational ministry is so much more than just its Sunday school. The religious educator and social 
Theorist C. Ellis Nelson explains the necessity of moving beyond the Sunday school classroom if religious education is to be efficacious. He says, faith is communicated by a company of believers and the meaning of faith is developed by members out of its history, by the interaction with each other and in relation to the events that take place in their lives. This sounds more like the responsibility of an entire congregation than it does the realm of one team or department. I wrote a chapter in the book Essex Conversations, Visions for Lifespan Religious Education. In it, I critique the Sunday school-centered model found in so many churches. This approach is modeled after one used in most public schools and it is contributing to their decline. These are Sunday school programs that have succumbed to the tyranny of curricula and offered a steady diet of circle time, story time, arts and crafts, all crowned by the spiritual high afforded by snack time. <laughs> this format may keep kids busy but it does not keep them engaged. It hopes to keep them in check, and that's the surest way to hold their imaginations captive. When I visit or consult with houses of worship about their religious education programs, I am not fooled by programs that promise young learners a deeper faith, but offer what is amounts to glorified babysitting. And neither are the children and youth deceived by programs that serve as repositories for kids so that the adults can worship in spirit and in truth. What truth does this impart to our children? In the, in the book, I contrast the Sunday school-centered approach with its mostly cognitive learning model with a community-based religious exploration program based on an experiential learning model. History had informed me well for this task. Based on the writers, the writings of Enlightenment educators and armed with John Dewey's dictum that all of life educates, I developed and promoted a new model, which really is not new at all, under the name Way Cool Sunday School. <laughs> Back then I was still young enough to be forgiven for the title. <laughs> Today I describe Way Cool Sunday School as one in which both learners and leaders, or teachers and students, know who they are and whose they are. In other words, self and religious identity. They articulate the tenets of their chosen faith and apply them to their daily decision making. They actively put hands and feet on our cerebral principles and purpose, they, purposes. They ask us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. But that's not all. In Way Cool Sunday School, learners and leaders seek total involvement in all aspects of congregational life. They put as much effort into their religious lives as they do into their careers, 401ks, or mutual funds, or in their academics, 
sports, and music. And they develop pride in and are evangelistic about their liberal religion. Simply put, these are folks who understand who they are and what they believe, that it is quite literally a matter of life and death in the 21st century. Yet religious education is in decline in houses of worship all over the country. As early as 1957, Life magazine dubbed Sunday school as the most wasted hour of the week. Similar to trends, the trends of churches as a whole, religious education programs today tend to either be very large or mostly non-existent. And similar to mainline Protestantism, attendance numbers have tanked. Many of America's largest congregations have eliminated religious education programs altogether. They cite that it's now too difficult to recruit teachers and staff in RE committee. They claim that children now learn digitally and that it's impossible to keep up with technology's innovations. Gone are the days when regular attendance is the norm in Sunday school, but the curriculum is still designed mostly with such assumptions. Finally, they say that parents no longer value religious education programs for their 21st century children. In fact, the majority of millennials don't go to church anymore. Religion is not relevant to their day-to-day -day lives. How did things get this way? For some congregations, it is the budget that is driving their educational ministries into an early grave. Others point to a lower birth rate among their members and in their communities. Some urban centers cite the migration of families with school-aged children to the suburbs and exurbs. Still others throw up their hands in defeat, realizing that the public school model employed by so many Sunday schools is no longer serving the public interest, let alone the public church and its ministry. But wait a minute. Most congregations realize they cannot simply skip a generation of learners and somehow retain them for their movements. When there is an age group missing during worship on Sunday mornings, you can bet that a generation was dismissed or neglected during their formative years. As far as a lack of children is concerned, most urban areas have higher birth rates than their suburban or rural, rural counterparts. A statistic I see every time I drive to church on the streets of Tulsa. Perhaps we're looking in the wrong neighborhoods or don't view every child as our child. And what about the predominance of the public school model in our houses of worship? If each generation is important and if every child is our child, then we can mobilize the best and most creative minds we have to create new models that truly minister to children, youth, and families. We do it for budgets, we do it with publicity, and we can do it for religious education. 
It's all about this phrase, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. We'll start with love kindness. Think about it. We are the keepers of a dream that says you are already okay, just as you are. Guilt is out and grace is in. You do not need to do anything, change anything, or be anything to belong in this dream. This dream affirms and promotes the inherent goodness of humanity. That's you and me. Sin is out and sanctification is in. Yes, we can be both holy and happy. And yes, we can all have fun at church. And this church does a really good job of that. An old proverb says, a merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. Walk humbly. We are the keepers of a dream that asserts that you are the primary source of revelation, of truths based on your own experiences and convictions. Dogma is out and dharma is in. Yet a humble posture is needed, lest we make gods of ourselves, not to mention fools. This dream says that you and I are the meaning makers and that what we believe matters. Do justice. This dream implores that you are the primary agents of change. In fact, this dream is changing minds, changing hearts to change the world. It believes that our work in the world brings all souls into harmony with the divine. This dream says that you and I are the miracle workers and that how we live matters. Simply put, this dream puts its faith in you. The faith to do justice and not just talk about it or write a check. It's the kind of faith that does justice actively and not passively. The foundation of this faith is to walk humbly, deflecting the attention towards issues of ultimacy rather than the, the ego on the altar of self. And the good news is that this is no dream. The future is now. So where do we learn about religion and life? It was Plato who observed it is the community that educates, by which he meant the multiplicity of formal and informal forces that influence people. Ask any parent where they think their children learn the most about the life they live, classroom or community. If we are fortunate, the church is part of that community. Perhaps building on this, the religious educator John Westerhoff observes that faith and education are inevitable companions. Wherever living faith exists, there is a community endeavoring to know, to understand, to live, and to witness to that faith. Then he poses what he calls the fundamental question. Will our children have faith? Given that our chosen faith is Unitarian Universalism, I know we cannot hide our light under a bushel. 
Our church may not need a bigger Sunday school, but there is a whole wide world of children who need the good news of liberal religion, some of them right in our own backyards. What kids don't need is a curriculum that tells them they are as worms and filthy rags and in need of a savior when the dominant culture already drives this home for them. Instead, our liberal religious message liberates them from the sanctimonious doctrines of false orthodoxy and the surreptitious declarations of false gods. Ours is truly a salvific faith. If you agree with me that, the, that we are stewards of salvation, a salvation based on doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly, then we must ensure that our children have faith. It may be time to breathe new life into dry bones and make this church's ministry to children, youth, and families a model for educational ministry. How do we start? Well, I need to note first that our religious education director, Tennille Wilson, is already breathing new life into old models of religious instruction. But she cannot do it alone and without more volunteers. Religious education is an essential portal of entry at Hope. So we should acknowledge that children bring gifts to worship and model spirituality to adults. Those of us who have taught Sunday school or led youth groups know this to be true. Some of the most moving and profound insights about spirituality have been delivered in this sanctuary by our youngest UUs. It's a matter of justice to ensure that the spiritual lives of children have their expression in adult-focused worship and community. I remember the six-year-old girl who gave me a wonderful explanation about the nature of God one day on a church playground. She told me, God is like the wind, sometimes here, other times there, always present, but never where you expect. This beats the bejesus out of Tillich and Bart, not to mention Aristotle and Plato, for me at least. Our children are ministers too. Second, we can breathe new life into dry bones by intentionally confusing religious education with social action. This would necessarily put lived experience before the dissemination of information. It would take Sunday school out of the classroom and onto the streets. Use curricula as a resource rather than a recipe. And unleash kids' natural abilities as agents of change. It's a matter of justice to empower our children and youth to do the work of this church in the world. We cannot skirt our obligation to provide children and youth the best education we can offer, even if they aren't pledging members. Yes, let's understand, 
religious education as social transformation. I would have our learners and leaders spend 10 weeks working in a food pantry, retirement home, or soup kitchen. After two weeks, take a, after, after their service, take a week or two to reflect on how these experiences affirmed or challenged their liberal beliefs. Witness to our neighbors that Unitarian Universalists are doers, not just hearers. Third, to breathe new life into dry bones. Forget the village and become a villager. All adults, not just parents, all adults can play a significant role in the spiritual lives of all our children. All of us share the responsibility to do so. In fact, I say that at church there should be at least six adults in the lives of every child or youth, not including their parents. As they grow, they need the wisdom of mature voices that are similar to those of their parents, though not the same. Forget the overused village metaphor. I think it is often used to sidestep the individual responsibility that is inherent in educating children religiously. It takes a villager to raise children who will grow up with principles, a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week villager, not an hour-long curriculum-dependent village once a week on Sundays. Most religious education takes place on days other than Sunday and in places other than church. When the love of the family is combined with the light of the church, their combined influence is greater than either influence in isolation. So when I consult with churches, I ask, are you a villager? You are if you introduce children to stories that embody our faith's tenets. You are if you light a chalice at home and spend time in prayer and meditation as a family. You are if good deeds outweigh gossip when it comes to your neighbors. You are if you greet children at church by name. You are if social action days are more important than movie nights. You are if Sundays are different from other days. You are every time you mentor a child that is not your own. And you certainly are if you spend some of your Sunday mornings in Sunday school or if you participate in our ministry to children, youth, and families. You are, whenever you do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. This is my challenge to you this morning. Become a villager to all the children of our church and community. Love kindness and help youth unearth their gifts for worship. Do justice and be an agent of change for children and be changed by them. Walk humbly and give your life away to save it. Now, if you are interested 
in helping hope grow children's souls and create a truly intergenerational congregation. Please see me today after today's worship service. I'll be in my study. Don't wait for someone else to volunteer. I need your help. Now, I won't say that it will always be easy. Significant ventures usually are not. I'm not one of those leaders who will say, oh, just add love and stir. But I do promise you'll be forever changed. Again, please see me after the service if you can help us. But I'll miss Sunday morning worship, you say. Not true. If we find enough volunteers, all teachers will have two Sundays on and two Sundays off each month to do things like worship, read the newspaper, or sleep in, all of which are authentic religious experiences. <laughs> I'm back today on the playground with my six-year-old theologian. Trying to impress her, I tell her that God is also like the wind because you cannot see either one of them, but you can feel their presence. I say this with a gloat in my eye. Score one for the trained professional. Her big brown eyes open wider, and she responds with confidence. But sometimes I can see God, and I can see the wind. Persuaded by the power of her convictions, I hang out with her a little longer. This may be as close to holiness as I ever get to the glory of life.